The reading this morning is from Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 23. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. I'm, I'm really excited to be in Romans 6 and 7 because uh, these chapters uh, tackle a very important issue for understanding the biblical gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, which Paul preached, was of salvation through grace alone, without being subject to the Old Testament law of commandments expressed in ordinances that the law was now abolished for believers, Ephesians 2.15, is a vital point for the book of Romans as a whole. First in that Jewish and Gentile Christians alike were created by God into one new man in place of two, so making peace. And so there is no longer a distinction between them, between Jew and Gentile, because of the law being abolished. And secondly, that nothing can be added to grace in regards to justification without negating the good news of the gospel. As we read in Romans 3, 21 to 23, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But when one says that believers are no longer subject to law, the immediate accusation which comes against this gospel is that it would result in people sinning all the more. In Paul's day, some Jewish Christians who had been trained to follow the law of Moses and had received Jesus as Lord then believed that any freedom from the law would be freedom to sin. They thought that this gospel of grace would actually promote sin. And so Paul's response, Romans 6.15, begins, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Now, before we move forward, we need to move backwards just a little bit. The question, what then, is in relation to what Paul has just written in verse 14, For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. 
As we learned uh, from our passage last week, genuine Christians are characterized by being dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And in response to this, we are commanded, Romans 6.11, to consider it so. We are to have our perspective aligned with God's perspective, and once our minds are so renewed, we are commanded, Romans 6.12, not to let sin reign in our bodies since it no longer has us under the power of control. And then finally in verse 14, we were told that sin will have no dominion over you. The future tense points to the only logical future if the mastery of sin has been broken for those who belong to Christ. Now, all this we looked at last week, but what we didn't examine was the final statement, which is repeated again in verse 15, since you are not under law but under grace. Now, we learned in Romans 5.20 that the law came to increase the trespass. One of God's major purposes in giving the law of Moses was to show Israel how guilty they were of violating God's will. Before the law, they were blissfully unaware of all the ways they were sinning against God. The law could not bring life and salvation because those outside of the promises of the gospel did not have the ability to obey it. And so the law pointed to what they were doing wrong, but it didn't give them the power to do what's right. Ultimately, the law could only bring death, which is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And so to live under the law, to put ourselves in subjection once again under the Old Testament law, is to live under the power of sin which is why it was so absurd for the Jewish Christians in Rome to try to impose the law onto Gentile believers or look down their noses at them, the law brought only slavery and condemnation. It is empowering grace rather than the standard of the law which transforms us. It is thus God's gift rather than His standard that produces genuine righteousness from the heart. And so the responsibility to obey is serious and cannot be shirked, but even this obedience is a gift of God's grace and of God's power and finally belongs to the realm of the promise, sin will have no dominion over you. So picking it up again in verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Paul is utterly appalled at the warped thinking that had been wrongly connected to his ministry, his gospel, the one biblical gospel, did not promote sin, it promotes holiness. It promoted, Romans 1.5 and 16.26, the obedience of faith. The very purpose of Paul's apostleship to the Gentiles, Romans 15.6, was so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And Romans 15, 18, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. So this is the purpose of Romans. 
the purpose that Paul comes and, and speaks to and preaches to these people, that they would become obedient people. Likewise, in 1 John, he writes, I write to you so that you will not sin. This is the purpose of, of many of the New Testament writings. The purpose is not just so that we would believe, but also that believing we would now obey. Because Christ Himself taught that those who love Him obey His commands. Now, asserting that believers are not under the law doesn't mean that they are free from doing the will of God. Uh, to say that believers are under grace means that they now have the power to keep the law of Christ. They are now able to love God and love their neighbor in increasing measure. But in a phrase, Paul destroys the watered-down gospel that he is falsely accused of preaching, a gospel which many are guilty of preaching today, a gospel which fails to include the good news that God's grace not only pardons from sin, but that it gives believers glorious victory over it so that they are no longer slaves to sin. Verse 16 do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Do you not know? This is a phrase Paul uses repeatedly when reminding people of what they should already know. And then he says something so obvious that it is almost redundant. Sorry, If you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. That's not, that's not a stretch of logic. Among Paul's audience, there were almost certainly those who had at some time offered themselves as slaves out of economic necessity. This was a very common fact in Rome. You couldn't go to the bank and borrow money. If you got in debt, you had to sell yourself as a slave and present yourself for work and obey your master. If you presented yourself as a slave and then obeyed as a slave, then you were, in fact, a slave. If you sold yourself as a slave and then obeyed as a slave, you couldn't say, well, I'm not a slave. You can't self-identify as not a slave. You are what you are. The thought continues, if I yield myself as a slave to God, then what am I? I am a slave to God. If, on the other hand, I yield myself to sin, then obviously that makes me a slave of sin. You remember how Paul had identified himself at the beginning of Romans. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, this title is not merely a status, but represents a description of the life which Paul was actively living. So, can we make the same claim, you and I? Whether or not we are slaves to sin is not only related to our status, which for believers is dead to sin, but who do we present ourselves to for service? Who do we obey? In John 8, 31 to 34, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, this is people who, who have believed in Jesus, who have said, I believe in Jesus and followed Him. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, if you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free 
They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved by anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So church, it it is not enough to just say that we are righteous because of Christ. Life under grace is characterized by obedience, by specific and concrete submission to the will of God. In fact, saying that life is only about being counted righteous in Christ by faith in the gospel is the very false gospel that Paul was accused of preaching. And so, in response, he emphatically declares throughout Romans that his gospel not only begins with faith, faith alone, but it also invariably invariably leads to faith, and it produces, Romans 1.5, the obedience of faith. That is, genuine, heartfelt obedience comes only through grace alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, but it produces this obedience. This is what Romans is all about, church. Paul utterly, utterly rejects any gospel that does not bring about righteous living. This is the very same issue which the Apostle John addresses in his first letter, 1 John 2, 29. If you know that He is righteous, Jesus, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. And 1 John 3, 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. As He is righteous. Sadly, many today are happily deceived. They claim to be righteous because they are trusting in Christ alone for their salvation, but the evidence shows who their master really is as they continue living a life of sin and self-seeking. Genuinely putting our hope and trust in Jesus for salvation will result in a transformed life. And so Paul argues that if one claims to be under grace and yet lives as a slave to sin, the claim is nullified by their conduct. Those who live under grace show that they are under grace because they have a new master, God, and are liberated from their old master of sin. You either serve sin, and if you do, you are going to die, or you serve obedience, in which case you will be moving more and more towards righteousness. You will be sanctified. If you are dead to sin but alive to God in Christ, sin will have no dominion over you. But those who commit their lives to sin will be eternally condemned. This life God offers is not for everyone who belongs to the community or everyone who hears the Word or every recipient of baptism, but for those who do God's will. Now, here's the good news, Romans 6, 17 to 18. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and have been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. Now, Paul didn't plant the church in Rome, 
He probably didn't know the name of every person to whom he is writing. He probably doesn't know the state of each person's soul. But he addresses the church as a whole with the understanding that those who really are the church, that is, those who really are in Christ, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which they were committed. As we follow the turns in Paul's argument here, don't get disorientated. After transmitting the law to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 30, 19 to 20, Paul called on them to make a choice. He said, uh, you know, here, here it is. Here's all the good stuff. Here's all the bad stuff. Spoiler, choose, choose the good stuff. <laughs> He's like, he says, I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, and holding fast to Him. But this is the law. Though Paul is still saying that you must love the Lord your God and obey His voice, he is not once again setting this decision before believers. That is the law. Paul's not saying... Here it is, church, you can choose to be a slave to sin or choose to be a slave to righteousness. Choose life. Choose the right one. That, that's the law. The law tells you, here's the right choice. If you just make the right choice, you will live. That's the law. The law says, on this hand, you have sin and disobedience, and it leads to destruction. On the other hand, obedience to God's commandment will grant you life. Un under the law... One could rightly delight in its goodness and desire in their minds to keep it, but they were sold under sin and enslaved by it. The law pointed to right behavior, but it was powerless to produce genuine obedience from the heart. This is what was promised by God through His prophets when they spoke of the new covenant and of the promised Holy Spirit. In Jeremiah 31, uh, 31 to 34 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27 says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See how different this is from the law? The law says, do what's right, and you will live. Do what's wrong, and you will die. The new covenant came after the old law was shown again and again to be insufficient. The people would hear this, and they would determine for a time, yeah, let's do the right thing because that will turn out right. And then once again, their desires would lead them to do what is wrong, and they would deserve only the negative aspects of the law. It's punishments. 
So in the new covenant, God says, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is not the law, once again. This is not saying, okay, church, choose wisely. Here's life, here's death. But it's to tell you, this is what salvation in Christ Jesus includes. So Paul's not just laying out the law again, choose life. But he is defending his gospel, the gospel of grace alone, against accusations that it leads to sin without the law. He is saying that by God's grace, you who were once slaves of sin have now become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. What Paul is announcing is the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Christians are not enslaved by sin. The moment you received Christ as your Savior, you also yielded to Him as Lord and became a slave of righteousness in truth. And now that you are a slave to righteousness, you are called to have your life devoted to righteousness. The great morality of the New Testament, someone wise once said, and now I always say, is be who you are. This is already who God has made you to be. Now walk in your nature. Now that you are born again and belong to Christ, if Christ is in you and you in Him, walk in His way. And so thanks to God is offered here. Not not a carrot and a stick, not saying do the right thing, but thanksgiving to God because it is His work that led to their heartfelt obedience. See how different this is from the law? Not that it denies that humans really are making decisions in submitting to God, But in typical biblical fashion, Paul attributes the decision ultimately to God's grace and power. Indeed, God must be the one who causes obedience to rise in human hearts because all human beings were slaves of sin under its lordship and dominion and thus totally unable to extricate themselves from its tyranny. But God in His grace broke the shackles of sin so that glad-hearted obedience becomes a reality for Christians everywhere. Everyone is either a slave to sin or to righteousness. And how do we know which one is our master? Which one do we spend our time serving? Who do we present ourselves to in obedience? Do you do the things that you don't want to do but can't seem to help yourself? Or have you become obedient from the heart to the gospel? 2 Corinthians 13.5 gives us a sober reminder. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So we're not going back to the law, church. In in emphasizing obedience to the will of God, we're not going back to the law and saying, choose life. We're saying God has granted life to those who have entrusted themselves to Him for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But examine yourselves. Is this true of you? Are you a slave to righteousness and walking in increasing obedience? Or are you enslaved to sin, doing what you wish you were not doing and only leads to shame? Christians, church, are are those who can joyfully proclaim that true freedom can be found in Christ. 
Is this something that we can bear witness to? Can we proclaim to those around us, you're in bondage. Come to the freedom that's found in Christ. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. But this, of course, implies that we have rejected the lie that Christians remain stuck in sin as long as they're in this world. Romans 6.19 continues, I am speaking, Paul writes, in, in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So now, as is usual with Paul, first he tells us what is already true, what God has already accomplished, who you already are in Christ. Now we come to a commandment. Just in the same way that you once presented yourself obedient to sin, now present yourself obedient to righteousness. And just as sin led to more sin, impurity to more impurity, lawlessness to more lawlessness, so being a slave to righteousness leads to further sanctification. Now, here Paul explains why he has given this lengthy figure of speech, because of your natural limitations, I should say, our natural limitations. Led by the Holy Spirit, Paul realizes that his audience will not understand without further example. And then, by speaking in human terms, he's also acknowledging that the slavery analogy only works so far. God is far more than a master. We are His children. Now, God owns us because He has bought us like a master purchased a slave. It is our only hope that we do not belong to ourselves but belong to God. But He is also a, a loving Heavenly Father who always does what is good for His children. And so, as with all analogies, this one is also limited. He speaks in human terms so that they can understand, so that we can understand. But the analogy is this, unbelievers are subservient to sin as a power which exerts authority over their lives. We are enslaved to it. But we have to remember, people don't submit to sin against their will. Neither do we submit to God against our will. We freely chose sin. People are slaves to sin in that they always desire to carry out the dictates of their master. This doesn't mean that when we're addicted to sin, we never wish to be freed, but it means that the desire for it is ultimately greater than the desire to be freed from it. Only God can release unbelievers from this type of subjection because all new desires are necessary to escape the bondage of sin. Of course, this is precisely what God has done. He has liberated believers from the tyranny of sin so that they have become obedient from the heart to the gospel. He has planted all new desires within them. And so, what Paul's emphasizing in this passage is the vast contrast between our old life and the new one, which becomes more and more obvious over time. We get more and more of a taste for it, more and more of a taste for sin or more and more of a taste for righteousness. 
Under the old master, our lives were spiraling downward in ever-increasing impurity, which in Paul is normally used for sexual sin and in lawless wickedness. But now things have changed. As we embrace our slavery to righteousness and habitually offer ourselves willingly to our new master, the result will be steady growth in holiness. When, when people give in to sin as a pattern of life, they fall deeper and deeper under its control. It's a, a terrible master. But, and their desires become more and more perverse. But praise the Lord, that is also the same that is true of righteousness. Once we begin to grow spiritually, we begin to see life differently and increasingly long for things that please God. You know, it might start out difficult. It might not come easy to you. You have a long history of choosing the wrong things, of desiring the wrong things. You have habits and addictions. But as you take those steps of obedience, as you choose who you will present yourself to is as a slave to righteousness, you will grow. This is the promise. This is what gives us hope in these hard times. As you struggle, the struggle is worthwhile because the struggle does not remain. It becomes more and more joyful to serve God. It becomes more and more your desire to walk in obedience. Verse 20 and 21. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. No one can serve two masters, Jesus said. Slavery to one master means freedom from control by another master. So it says here that slaves to sin are free from the dictates of righteousness and vice versa. Think back to your non-Christian days. What kind of fruit were you getting from it? What were the results of the things you were doing of which you are now ashamed? Paul essentially asks us here, why in the world would you want to go back to your old lifestyle? Like a dog returning to its vomit, why would you go back to slavery to sin? Why would you choose that? If you've been freed from the power of sin, why would you go back to that habit? Yes, you were free of any obligation to live righteous lives, but you were slaves of sin. And although you may have denied it at the time, you were ashamed of your actions, and you knew that fruitless lifestyle led to death. But now, Romans 6.22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and to its end, eternal life. Sanctification is the result of this new and willing slavery to God, holiness, being increasingly conformed to the image of God in Christ, putting off the old, being adorned with the new. These concepts, these realities should be the delight and goal of each and every believer. Nothing should suppress the longing for personal holiness that the Spirit has implanted in our hearts. Those who have been set free from sin have become slaves of God. And the fruit of this leads to a transformed life, sanctification. And sanctification has at its end point eternal life. 
Do you see the necessary connection here? The aim of these verses is to motivate believers to present themselves as slaves to righteousness because our former slavery to sin resulted only in shame, misery, and ultimately death. But the result of slavery to God is further sanctification, and further sanctification results in eternal life. New life in Christ is evident when you recognize your past life for what it was and turn from it accordingly. Finally, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, this is one I memorized as a child and is a good one to memorize because it is just so heavy laden theologically. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How can eternal life be a gift if it requires slavery? How can it be a gift if we have to be sanctified? If we have to be sanctified and we have to become a slave to God and a slave to righteousness, doesn't this all mean that we somehow earn eternal life? What does it mean? Romans 2, 6-7 says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. And Paul's emphasis on a changed life and on sanctification as part and parcel of the gospel might leave us thinking that eternal life is given to those who work hard enough to live righteous lives, but that is not his point at all. The message here is that the biblical gospel is not one that merely takes away condemnation for sin, but it also changes us as well. Both of these things are God's gift to everyone who embraces the biblical gospel. One is necessary for the other. The Bible is clear about that in many times and places. Sanctification is necessary for eternal life. Obedience is necessary. So how can eternal life be a free gift if there are necessary qualifications, necessary actions on your behalf? It means that those acts of obedience, those works of righteousness are also the gift of God's grace in your life. Sure gifts, sure promises. God will do this in you. He has already predestined that you will be transformed into the likeness of His Son and walk in His way. Both are gifts of God. The gospel is better than we have ever believed. Those who live as slaves of righteousness are able to do so because of what God has done in them. He is the one who causes us to be born again. He is the one who puts new hearts in us and gives us His Holy Spirit to empower us to live holy lives. These are the very gifts He promised long ago through Jeremiah and Ezekiel. He is the one who sets us free from slavery to sin and makes us slaves of righteousness when we embrace the gospel. We have to see the uneven contrast here in this verse. Sin pays wages. Sin pays wages in death. 
Well, eternal life is wholly undeserved. The slaves of sin earn their wages. They get what they deserve. But eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord, is a gift from God, a gift that cannot be purchased, a gift that cannot be earned, a gift that cannot be merited. It is something that God gives to us freely. However, this gift also includes a transformed heart, new desires, a longing to be sanctified, a longing to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, a longing to be transformed so we love our neighbor as ourselves. Many Christians, however, hear the word free and take it to mean without obligation. You know, has anyone ever spoken to you of, of eternal life or the gospel being with no strings attached? This is precisely the gospel Paul has been accused of preaching. A gospel where no necessary changes of lifestyle were involved. The gospel does offer eternal life without payment, but it does not offer eternal life without obligation. We receive life in Christ at no cost, free grace. But in doing so, we necessarily become slaves to God and to righteousness. And so Paul here refuses to accept any abstract understanding of grace separated from concrete daily living. Grace doesn't merely involve the forgiveness of sins. It also involves power in which the mastery and dominion of sin are broken in believers' lives. Salvation is the work of God through grace. But that doesn't rule out human activity or suggest that human decisions are unnecessary. Instead, we give all credit to God. The work of God is the basis and the ground for the choice we must make to submit to righteousness. If God has freed you from sin, church, the result is that you have already become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end is eternal life. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the wondrous gift of your gospel, the good news, your plan of salvation from before the foundations of the world. And God, as someone who has spent my Christian life desperate to know more of this, I am so amazed at how I grow in my love for you and my estimation of you throughout my life, and consistently, constantly finding new things to give you glory about. And Lord, we thank you that because you are eternally good, that this is our lot for the rest of eternity, to know how great you are, to marvel at your goodness, at your beauty, the, the wonders of the mind that decided to save wicked sinners through such a great sacrifice. Lord, now as we contemplate the fullness of this gospel, which includes sanctification, that this too is the gift of God's grace, a necessary transformation, but that is also the work of God through Your Spirit. Lord, I pray that we would be transformed now as our minds are changed and renewed upon your word. Lord, if there are those here this morning who are still slaves to sin, 
as I once was as a, a youth pastor and had been in church my whole life. Lord, I pray that you would impress upon them their desperate need for you and they would cry to you for salvation. And Lord, if there are those here among us who have been walking in sin despite having already been freed from it by you, Lord, I pray that they would know now the power that is at work in them, Christ in them, and with confidence choose what is right, knowing that they are no longer enslaved to sin. Forgive us, O God, where we have excused ourselves in our sin by feigning weakness. For although we are hopeless and helpless in ourselves, with Christ in us, we are fully capable and are commanded to walk away from sin. And so, Lord, we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of the call that we have received. Help us to be who we are in Christ, we pray, for your glory. God, may we be able to boldly and joyfully proclaim the freedom that we have in Christ. Amen.